Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Erica Petricelli and Roderick Dixon are no strangers to the LA Opera stage. Listen as they join Senior Director of Artistic Planning, Paul Hopper, to explore their characters and favorite musical moments in Zemlinsky's The Dwarf, as well as what it means to truly see oneself. Don't miss this rarely performed one-act opera, playing now through March 17th. Tickets are on sale at laopera.org. Hello, I am Paul Hopper, Senior Director of Artistic Planning at LA Opera, and I'm very happy to be joined here today with two stars of one half of our double bill, Erica Petricelli and Roderick Dixon, who are performing the roles of Infanta and the Dwarf. It's so great to be speaking with both of you here today. Thanks very much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I want to start by saying welcome back to Los Angeles, to Roderick, and welcome to Just Down the Street, to Erica (laughs) as a Los Angeles resident. Uh, Neither of you are strangers to the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion stage here at LA Opera. So I want to talk a little bit about your history with the company. Erica, let's start with you as you're a graduate of the company's Domingo Colburn Stein Young Artist Program. What's it like to be returning now in a principal role in a company that you started as a young artist at? It's absolutely incredible to be back. It's a company that feels like home, of course. I was a young artist in 2018 to 2020. And then I was also fortunate to come back in some smaller roles in Tannhäuser and Cenerentola. But now I get to sing a much more prominent role. And I just love feeling the support from my home company and to be right down the street from home. It's just absolutely incredible. It feels so comfy to be on stage because I've been up there several times and it's marvelous. Wonderful. Well, we're great to have you back. And I think that's just a wonderful example of the philosophy of the Young Artist Program that uh, we're bringing in artists that we want to cultivate and help them grow, but with the goal of having them return back to our stages. So I'm very happy that you're here for this year and next year as well. Do you want to give us a little preview of next season as well? Yes, I am so excited to be singing Fior de Ligi in Così Fan Tutte. That is a really exciting debut for me. I cannot wait. Absolutely. And Roderick, this is a return for you too, not just to LA Opera, but to this role and to this title as well. You originated this role when the production premiered in 2008. What does it feel like broadly to return to the company and to this role? Oh, it's absolutely a joy. I discovered Detzweg in 2008 with LA Opera. And as an artist, it was unbelievable then and now I get to come back with a few more toys to play with vocally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's been so much fun just discovering uh, what my voice wants to do now and um, just finding out that in the hall, uh, my voice is received well. Mm-hmm. And I'm just having a ball and it's great work with Erica and Kristen Zygmuntson and Emily McGee, who is a fellow friend of mine from the Young Artist Program in Chicago at Lyric Opera mm-hmm. under Bartoletti and uh, Artist Cranic. So this is just, this is great. This is a good meal for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, tell me a little more about, I think you said the new toys to play with. Yeah. With a 15, 16 year break in returning to this title, yeah. 
what does that really mean for you, either technically, dramatically, or, or physically? I think it's part of living. You, you have a life to draw upon when you look at the character of the dwarf in particular. And then the times have changed quite a bit, not only nationally, but internationally, when it comes to looking at people who are born with certain kinds of physical or emotional things that are happening in their lives. And people have a different way of approaching other human beings about that and being much more kinder about it and more sympathetic and considerate. And having said that, the dwarf fits right into the narrative today of people being conscientious of how they approach other people who are trying to live their lives. And I speak about him as a real character because there are a lot of people who will be at the opera house who will find themselves agreeing or being treated the way he's being treated. And they're looking for a voice that represents their voice, even though they may not be heard. So in that regard, it's really great now. In the other regard, vocally, I think because I technically can sing in all four fox, I started as a light lyric, even though I had a baritone voice all along, Rossini, Donizetti, and then, of course, the Mozart, and then the, the full lyric repertoire, and then I graduated into dramatic repertoire, and then, lo and behold, the dramatics being doing the Helden kind of stuff just came in because of the Wagner and the heavy verdi, and so... Spherg is a combination of all those guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's a lot of toys to play with. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, a race car. You know, you have to figure out when to shift down and when to shift up. But the baritone part of my voice is alive and well, and it's here. Mm-hmm. Well, having been in numerous rehearsals just this week, it is definitely a finely tuned race car that you're working <laughs> with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'd like to draw out a little more what you said about how your character is treated by sort of talking about these two characters. So let's start with you, Erica. You play the role of Infanta. Who is she? What does that mean? Where do we find her at the beginning of this journey? Paint a little picture for us. Yeah, absolutely. So she is the Princess of Spain. It is her 18th birthday, a little bit older than in the Oscar Wilde story. I think she's 12. And in the painting, she's five, I believe. But the person herself in history, she was not exactly the most lovely figure. Mm-hmm. She just has a very sheltered life. And I would say at this time, the little people really were just playthings for them. It's her birthday. She doesn't know how to treat this person other than as a toy. And so basically she uses him. And at the end, when he's totally spent, he's broken and she moves on. I mean, it's absolutely terrible. But from her perspective, she doesn't really know any other reality. That's She doesn't see what's wrong with that. She hasn't been open to understanding he has real feelings. He's a real person. And that's that's a way to try to look at her a little bit nicely. She really is awful. But <laughs> when you play a character like this, you have to try to think of it a little bit more well-rounded than just evil. <laughs> so. Right, because it is a very three-dimensional portrayal that you're offering, even if she seems yeah. very distant and sort of blissfully unaware of the harm that she's causing. Yes. I think one of the most, for me, as a sort of audience member, one of the most devastating moments is I think it's your final line when she has put Roderick's character really through the ringer of bringing his expectations up, dropping them down. 
And then there's this musical cue where I think you say something like, well, I'm going to go back to dancing. And she just steps off the stage as if that was just a tiny little blip in the radar of her day. That's exactly right. She just, it's a 180 and she's gone. But what's also really interesting that we've sort of been playing with a little bit is there is a moment in the duet section that's before that, about halfway through the opera, where there's a glimmer of something. She feels something for him. She's intrigued. She's attracted to him. She's maybe a little bit feeling love for him. And she says, she even says, I would love you in this theoretical game that they're playing. But then something happens and she shuts down. It's like this wall goes up. So there's a little glimmer of that feeling that she is like, oh, oh, this is something bad. I shouldn't be feeling this way about this person. And she's like, okay, we're going to shove that aside. But there's definitely a level of attraction there that she gives into for just a second. So that also keeps it interesting, exciting, and a little bit adds a little more dimension to her too. Absolutely. So your character, Erica, is based on a historic figure. Roderick, tell us a little more about the title character of Der Zwerg or the Dwarf. What do we know about him on paper within the libretto? And what do we not know about who he is, where he came from, what what led him to this moment? Well, in the libretto itself, it speaks about him being a slave sold mm-hmm. by a Spaniard to the Sultan. And then it talks about his mother who died. Mm-hmm. And then he says, the only other thing I know about is her, Infanta. Mm-hmm. Very specific, very clear about what he knows. And then in this script, it also talks about how much he has traveled. Mm-hmm. He's seen places, foreign lands, paradise. He's also able to speak in her language. That's very clear and very important because the clarity about that is that He seems to be, if I were to put it into modern terms, like a Renaissance man. Mm. He's well-dressed. He's presented as a gift. And yet in that environment, he finds a way to read the room and understand what's going on amongst the people in the court. So he's a court jester. He knows how to entertain. He knows how to be aware of his space. That's who he is in the script. Now, the dwarf figure, some say... Uh, that uh, Zelensky had a personal life and the dwarf figure is somewhat him Hmm. in terms of his personal life with another figure, a young lady. And I won't say her name, but I will say that that attraction he had for her and the fact that she was not necessarily uh, willing to marry him, that this figure is, is somewhat privately his conversation about that kind of heartbreak, Mm -hmm. that he would never have her. Now, those are the stories about the composer and the figure in terms of what the character is based on in the actual libretto. I would say that I think the dwarf represents for all of us this sense of what inner beauty and outer beauty and outer beauty and inner beauty is really all about, the mirror. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to say even further that that conversation really, for me, has to deal with regrets as an older person looks back over their life. And they look at their life in terms of a mirror and say, am I who I thought I was going to become? And am I that person now? And what are my regrets if I didn't do enough to become that person later on in life? That's a mirror, too. And yet he's faced with being alive 
and he chooses love he's never had before, and yet he dies because of it. So when you add all of that up in the roux of the pot of the sauce or the soup, there's a lot going on with the dwarf, the character, in terms of the historical nature of the character from the Oscar Wilde. The fact that the composer himself sees himself in the character, and then the character represents to society a certain kind of stirring the drink. He has a job to do with humanity that no matter how you look on the outside, the inner side of you is the most important thing to our human race, the inner beauty. And yet he runs into her. And let me add parenthetically that she, to me, represents what unconditional love is really all about because he loses his mother. He's sold as a slave. And he says, the only other thing I know is you. So the unconditional love from his mother and then the fact he doesn't get it from her is what really puts him in a space where he just has no sense of living. Because if he doesn't get that kiss, then it is true that he's ugly. And so how do you live like that? And he asked God a question. How could you make me so ugly in a beautiful world? What an unbelievable line. Hmm. And I get to live in that space with him on the stage in every performance. Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> You're in the right place then. <laughs> I love what you said about the mirror too, because it's an image that's used a lot in our promotional materials because it is not just a prop. It's also part of the set in the hall of mirrors that, that yeah. the drama unfolds in, but it's this sort of larger metaphor about how, what we think about ourselves and does our perception match the reality? Yeah. These are incredibly complex characters and in this production from Darko Tresniak, there are very specific physical portrayals for both of your characters. Erica, can you tell me a little bit about the physical world, either in gesture, posture, staging, costume, about this character and how that informs your performance? Maybe how it was challenging or what it opened up for you in the rehearsal process? Yeah, so when you see the show, you'll see that I'm wearing this gigantic dress, extremely wide Quite dress, <laughs> <laughs> historically accurate to what they would wear at the time. And it definitely is extremely limiting. I mean, it's a corset, it's a giant skirt. And even my arms, I can only move so high above my head. And so you really are confined to this dress and you have to move in a very grand way. You can't, you know, you, you take up so much space. And so that definitely adds to the feeling of importance because you ha you just forces you to command the space, to walk slowly, to walk with purpose. And I think Darko is a genius for putting us in our the way we are dressed, for influencing how we act and how we can give more to our character. And I definitely feel that when I'm in my street clothes versus when I put my dress on, it's it just completely changes how you feel. And you imagine... That's how they felt back then, too, I'm sure. The the clothes informed their persona in a way. And also, like you were saying, the Hall of Mirrors. I have this moment uh, before the curtain comes up at the very top of the show where I'm preset. And I'm just sitting there on the stage. And it's it's kind of dark. And I just see all the mirrors. And I just imagine this princess, she just... Whether she designed it, I don't know, but they designed this room so that they could just look at themselves all day mm -hmm. because they just love how they look. They want to be told how beautiful they are, partially why she loves the dwarf so much because he's always talking about how beautiful she is and she just cannot get enough of that. And Darko's idea of it too is she's extremely vain and 
she just wants more and more and more of that vanity. And so she just can't help herself. She has to look in the mirror. She has to look beautiful all the time. And the chorus tells her how beautiful she is. It's just a constant thing for her. So that's really who she is. It is her birthday, too. So <laughs> she should be feted, but maybe it's to a slightly extreme nature. Yeah. And for the audience that sees this, even before, while you are preset behind the curtain before the opera begins, we're sort of brought into this world by a painted drop in front of the stage, which is a painting that really informed the entire visual world for this production. We almost we see your character, Erica, in the painting as maybe a younger child at that point. But as the curtain goes up, you very clearly see that it's almost recreated in three dimension on the stage. Yeah, Darko is just a genius I, with that idea, especially at the end, spoiler alert, when <laughs> when the dwarf dies and we reveal the painting even more so. It's just this haunting full circle moment of these people are kind of trapped in this reality and that's just always who they're going to be. This event did not change them. They're just sort of cold and they do their duty and that, that's it. Right. It's just another day for them when for the dwarf, it might be the biggest day of his life. Yes. This event takes place, what, 20 to 48 hours? Short amount it's of time. It's a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Once he's presented as a gift, we go to the garden and then Gita comes in and she tells me that it's something you need to learn about mm-hmm. and that unfortunately the mirror is something you've never seen. So it's 20 to 48 hours. It's a party. Mm-hmm. It's a party, everybody. Mm-hmm. We're having fun. <laughs> We're having fun. Roderick, how about the physicality for your character, both in the costume and in your physical portrayal? Well, one boot is higher than the other. You can't tell from the stage. And that's not a metaphor. That's literally the costume, the, the boot, costume, the shoes, the kind shoe. of gives you almost yeah. a hobble. A hobble, right. Mm-hmm. And um, my costume is beautiful. I have these arms that uh, fit through sleeves and then the sleeves hang down from my arms and so they allow me to play with the the costume in a way with my movement like um, marionette or some some kind of thing like that and so it allows me to create more contour of him physically when I'm moving around in that position so I have some props that give me dramatic intensity I can be very intense with that and I can soften that look up by not paying attention to it, but make it seem like it's a part of the course. So my costume is beautiful, bright orange, burnished orange, lots of jewelry, lots of uh, embroidery. I have these boots. I have like a genie pair of pants that just flare out and this hump and my hat and all this jewelry and some earrings. And so I get to use my hands like a court jester and really go into that world. And it's, it's wonderful. The demand physically to sing this in that that state is challenging. The knees constantly bending over and constantly having to stay in that position. Now, the beautiful thing that, that Darko did, I think, was the set is bigger than I am. It's built up higher, so when I do crotch down, I look smaller from the, mm. from the house, even though I'm 5'9". It's mm. the truth is I look smaller from the house because I'm constantly in the, the belly of the set on the ground floor, which is raked. And then we have three stairs that have three three different levels. And so, and then these big tall doors, which have the mirrors. So I have a tactical advantage from from the way the set gives the illusion that I'm smaller. So physically it's demanding, 
because I have to crotch over. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole set as much as, as much throughout the whole opera as I possibly can. It's gonna be it's got, Erica's a certain height and Geech is a certain height, and of course Christian is a big guy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, costume wise, beautiful and physically demanding. So much of the training to be an opera singer is about finding release within the body. And now both of your characters are required to have such specific physical postures. Is there any type of physical warm-up or warm-down that's specific for this? Do you feel these roles? Erica, I think about just kind of keeping your arms out that in that like floated, elegant position. Does it stick with you physically afterwards? I will say that I'm a little bit of a weirdo and that I actually like to have a corset sometimes when I sing because Mm -hmm. it gives a little bit of resistance. Mm -hmm. And the arms, uh, you have to be very careful to not let it creep into your shoulders, which is something I have to be mindful of. But I will say the corset for me personally can work to an advantage and also forced to being in a kind of an aligned posture can be helpful too. That being said, it, it is easy to get out of breath. I don't know if you feel that, but I mean, yeah. it, it really is a physical, physically demanding show. And you have to sort of take those measures of the orchestra just playing or Roderick singing to, to kind of like recalibrate, okay, just like breathe deep. Because when you are singing, it's phrase after phrase after phrase, and we're often moving around. And when you're wearing these heavy costumes, it's a lot of extra weight. And so you do have to kind of just remember, all right, just chill out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. I know in our um, orchestra tech rehearsal, I noticed that. I said, well, I have a big scene coming up now, so let me find a way to just blow out and um, relax and uh, and learn where those moments are throughout the night in terms of the performance, because now we're getting our sea legs. Mm-hmm. And you talked about, you know, finding a way to release and how do you do that and stay in character without losing any intensity of the drama that's happening in the scene with you and the other character? Because the listener has to focus the audience to the information from the character. And if I pull focus, it messes up the conversation between us. So we're constantly working, but at the same time, we have to find a way to relax. And that becomes the other conversation over the, 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 the rehearsal process. How do you relax in character without losing intensity? I want to touch a little bit on the composer, Alexander Zemlinsky. Do either of you have history with the composer outside of this title? I do have a little bit of history with Zemlinsky. I sang the Lyric Symphony at Bard a few years ago. Uh, musically, sort of similar. I think this is a little bit more tonal than that. And I know you said outside of this piece, but I actually also sang one of the maids in this piece with Odyssey Opera in Boston a few years ago. So I have a little bit of experience, not as much as Roderick, but uh, I, I love I love Zemlinsky. I think it's just gorgeous music. And I'm so happy that people will get to hear it. Yeah, I, I find myself constantly trying to compare him or place him within a musical history or, oh, it sounds a little bit like ex-composer. I don't even want to say the composers that come to mind because as soon as that thought enters my mind, he changes in a different direction. I think, oh no, it's not like that composer. It's really a distinctive style. I say that it's rather sparkling and evocative, but very fast moving. 
it often stays in one sentiment then moves very quickly to another one, sort of fleeting almost. Yeah. The triplet figure, it's very big in this opera. And uh, for me, uh, this was my first time uh, being introduced to uh, Alexander Zelensky. In 2008. The, uh, in 2008, yes. Um, and I've done a lot of uh, contemporary music. Um, but this was my first time. And I just was floored. I said, my God. I said, he has these duplet figures happening on top of triplets, which is pretty much like my character. And then he had, do, 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 do. And he does that. And I can see the physicality of the character in the actual rhythmic stresses in the orchestration. And then I'm watching these triple figures give us a sense of this swirling world that's moving through these modes that have a, a sense of Africa and the sense of the modes themselves. And then the duplet figures, the, the two with the brackets, and it, mm, uh, mm. and so I said to myself, th- speaking in layman terms, I said, "This cat is a bad motor scooter." <laughs> <laughs> just you know, for a musician, it's just you see that, and you're like, he really has all three worlds working. And then, of course, he has the orchestration, really painting the picture between all the characters and giving you a sense of the world of this wonderful story where beauty and darkness and darkness and beauty are coming together in the music and also in the rhythmic stress. It's just fabulous, absolutely mm-hmm. fabulous. It's a very dense score. So I'm curious for our listeners, if we wanted to give them just a little roadmap of something to listen for, what is your favorite musical moment? When does it fall, whether it's your character or or somebody else, or the chorus, or just the orchestra? Does any moment stand out as that one that you just keep thinking about? Well, one of mine is one you already talked about, and I'm going to touch on that too. Yeah. But when when we first have our mo- first moment together, I sing this finally kind of uh, really beautiful line about come sit with me on the stairs and we'll see the garden. And, it's, and then Roderick sings it later on in a much more elaborate way, and it is so gorgeous. Yeah. And he kind of has this uh, motif of the night with this, yeah. I don't know, what do you call it? Cascading eighth notes. Yes, eighth notes going up. up. Oh, it's so gorgeous. And then my other favorite is I cry every time when he sings about how could something so ugly be on such a beautiful yeah. earth? Oh, that line kills me. You have to kind of wade through a lot of funky tonality. It's not atonal, but it's a little funky. And then it all of a sudden you get this burst of just gorgeousness. And yeah. those are my favorite moments. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. When I listen to the score and I look at the drama between the characters in those scenes, it's just so well-crafted. Mm-hmm. It's really well crafted. It could play in a Broadway house. It can play in any theater anywhere in the world. It's so well done, and the conversation between the characters are so—they're captured by these motifs. Each time you hear the motif, you you know that the character is feeling something because you've heard it enough that 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 belongs to her and that belongs to him and this belongs to her. And as a person of the theater, I look at drama and I just go, oh. I mean, he just got it right. He really got it right. Uh, my favorite moments are really the moments where the dwarf looks at Infita and begins to understand that he's asking her to tell him the truth. Is this true? And he knows that in the question is the answer because she's the one that's telling him, I can't kiss you. Hmm. If you but you have to kiss me. 
else I'm going to die. You're going to let me die. And the answer she gives is, I'm going to go back and dance. So that's one part of it. And then he has this other part of his character that's constantly talking to God. You've sent me to her. You've sent her to me. And then he says to God, but how could you do this to me? And she's right. She has to tell him the one thing through Gita. I'm sorry, I cannot kiss you. And at the very end at the duet, we have this conversation about, but you've got to kiss me. And she says, I can't. You are ugly. And so for me, those moments are important, I think, to our, to our human brothers and sisters who are watching the opera. Mm-hmm. I think it's our job as artists to put these difficult conversations in front of them so they don't have to have a big conversation with their friends, but they can sit in the darkness as individuals and have a personal conversation with what constitutes love, unconditional love, and what are those things I need to do to be aware that is necessary for me to edify other human beings. And I like to say that we advocate for those characters. Yes, she's mean and And it's awful what she does, but she tells the truth and it has to be honored. It's really clear that you are both very passionate about this piece and that it is musically stimulating. It is dramatically complex and it's a really riveting one act opera. And yet it hasn't really found its footing as a piece in the standard repertoire. So this piece, as well as Highway 1 USA, which is the other half of this double bill, a piece that could not be more different musically or dramatically, is under the broader umbrella of the Recovered Voices Initiative. I wonder if either of you can speak to what that initiative means to you and how this piece plays into it. I think part of our job as artists and singers is to bring new music to the public. The public deserves to be exposed to all kinds of different sounds, all kinds of different stories that need to be told. And I think the themes of both of these stories and the music are so important and still so relevant. This juxtaposition of inner beauty versus outer beauty our society still absolutely values outer beauty and sees that as a as a virtue and so we can still learn so much from this piece and you can feel just as much listening to this opera as you do listening to a bohème um and different things that you that you need to feel as a person to process your emotions and just experience life i think it's part of our job i like what she said I'm just going to stand with that. I like that. Yeah, I would have said the same things probably a different way, but I like the way you expressed that. It's beautiful. And I love what you said about how there's a place for both the sort of what we call standard repertoire of the very recognizable titles, as well as these pieces, while they may not be a new work, they are new. It's a new experience for a lot of audience members and ask the question, well, what's a great first opera for people? And many times the instinct is, oh, it should be Bohem, or it should be Carmen, or it should be Aida, or one of the literal ABCs, Aida Bohem's Carmen's of the world. And yet 
with this piece, especially when it's paired with Highway 1 USA, I think it's an incredible first night at the opera for people, partially because the pieces are standalone on their own. They're each one-act operas, so the length is not a barrier of either piece. The stories are very stimulating and thought-provoking, and the music itself is just so stimulating, both in the William Grant Still and Highway 1 USA, which comes first in the double bill, and then this huge, symphonic, almost overwhelming harmonic structure of Der Zwerg. So I often need to check myself in thinking of what's the great first opera. This evening, this double bill is just a reminder for me to kind of check those assumptions about what operas are great for what type of people, depending on their history with uh, interacting with the art form. Yeah. Uh, I will say this. Recently, I attended a service and someone said, I have never been to an opera before. And I thought to myself, I said, now that's interesting. My reaction was, well, come. You don't have to have any preconceived notions about what you think it is. Come sit in the darkness. Let the music wash over you. Let these beautiful voices speak to you and immerse yourself in the experience. And then tell me afterwards, Mm -hmm. what did you like? And that's what opera is. It's an experience. And whatever's on the stage, there are some things that are really constant. It's the music. It's the voices. And then you put the experience of the story in the middle and you will have a moment or an experience that you will never, ever forget. Do they need to know the operas? Probably not. They just need to come and sit there and go, this is why people come to operas. It's really that simple. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that invitation, so to speak, Erica and Roderick, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been a real joy to peel back the curtain a little bit and see your inner workings of this opera and of these characters. And I hope that everybody listening will take Roderick's invitation to come and experience it. I invite all of our listeners to come and experience Dertzberg and Highway 1 USA and I thank you both for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you so much for having us. Can I add this? Please thank do. you to LA Opera for bringing this historical production to this community. And there will be some people who have never been at the Opera House before. And now they're going to experience it in a way that it was meant to be experienced. History is being made. William Grant Still. What an unbelievable gift to finally bring his voice to the platform for people to hear it and of course Alexander Zelensky we can't thank you enough really thank you bravo LA Opera cheers to that thanks don't miss this rarely performed one act opera Playing now through March 17th. Tickets are on sale at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media. 
and we'll see you at the opera. Bye.